Welcome to the podcast. I appreciate you for being here. Before we listen to my next guest, I want to ask that if you like the podcast, please subscribe to the channel and leave a positive review so we can grow this channel. I've been working really hard for you guys to grow by putting systems in place that bring on guests who are very valuable to you. And I'm just going to be honest, it hasn't been an easy ride. So I would certainly appreciate your support. Also, let me know your thoughts by texting me at 714-294-0269. Again, 714-294-0269. Zero two six nine. Last time, seven one four two nine four zero two six nine. To ask about details and to receive future podcasts directly to your cell phone. Let's continue with the podcast. I'm here with Eric from Salon Republic. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Eric, but you own twenty one salons. Correct. Awesome. Okay. So, obviously, right now your your business is doing great, but. I want to I want to take it back to early beginnings and kind of get it get your background and what your story has entailed. Uh, or can we start from the very beginning? Sure, I'm actually going to start a little bit before my beginning because so much of my beginning has to do with my parents' beginning. My dad, uh, well, actually, my grandfather was an immigrant from Italy. Classic situation, you know, on the boat coming over Ellis Island, the whole nine yards. Moves to New York City, doesn't speak any English, um, classic stuff like that. Uh, my dad, first generation Italian from New York, depression era child. And uh, my mom was, um, her family, you know, is from the U.S. quite a bit more, um, quite a bit more, uh, several generations from Ireland. But I grew up in a house essentially with these two people who from before I was born were entrepreneurs, but very different types of entrepreneurs. My dad was in the real estate business, uh, worked for several real estate companies, and then at a certain point before I was born, started um, his own real estate business just by buying his first property. And, you know, within a year was, was making more money on that one property than he was working for the real estate company. So he um, quit the real estate company and started this, this, um, this real estate business. It was an industrial business. And over the course of his career, grew it to a maximum of five buildings. So, you know, kind of one of these millionaire next door sort of stories where, um, he never had any employees, uh, was never fancy, uh, mm. was always this kind of depression era perspective on things, had his office there in the house always, never had to travel or anything like that. And, right. and, uh, you know, bought these five buildings and took 30 year mortgages and held them for 30 or 40 years paid off the mortgages and then sold the business sold the buildings. Right. And, right. and this is, this is kind of an historic way of doing business. You know, we, we don't really think about certainly in podcasts mm -hmm. uh, and, and in business media, we never talk about that way of doing business, but this is, this is a real way of doing business that does generate a lot of wealth. So that, that was what I was privy to and experiencing as a you know, young kid growing up in the house on my dad's side. On my mom's side, it was similar, but very different because her business was as an oil painter. Hmm. She was always very artistic, 
when uh, my brother and I were born, my brother's a little bit older. When he and I were born, my mom was a flight attendant working for a company called Braniff, which went out of business. She was out of the house quite a bit um, in, you know, the early months of, of, you know, my life. And she decided to quit that job. Actually, uh, Braniff went out of business, I think. And then she decided to be at home more with my brother and I. So she learned how to be an oil painter. And it was a very intentional thing. She went out and she took classes. She got educated on it. She practiced and she developed a skill of of painting art and then develop this skill over time all within the house so (laughs) i'm i'm being raised in a house where i've got a real estate oriented dad which is very finance based right right and then i have an artist mom who is upstairs in the house in her studio painting art Mm -hmm. and and if each of them whoever was doing well money was coming in. If they weren't doing well, money was not coming in. And this was how I grew up. And the perspective that I had in in relation to how one has a career, it was never an idea in my head that I was going to go out and get a job and work for somebody. Yeah. I love that. It was in your DNA pretty much. It was in my DNA. It absolutely was. Yeah, and, and I think even more importantly, and, th- and this applies to m- the industry in which I am now, which is you know the the salon business, and and my customers are all of our hairdressers who are very creative people. My mom, even though she was creative, she also had to be pragmatic. She, if she painted something uh, based on her own creative egocentrism or her own notion of what it is to, um, to create a piece of art. Mm. And it wasn't anything that anyone wanted to buy. Then she obviously couldn't sell that art. Right. Yeah. And, and if she couldn't sell the art, then it was harder for her to justify having this life as, as an artist, because you have the practicality of making money and, and spending yeah, money, et cetera. Commercialize her artwork pretty much. What's that? She had to commercialize her artwork. She had to commercialize the artwork. And a lot of artists, if they want to be an artist, you kind of have to commercialize your art, right? <laughs> yeah. Because, because otherwise it's a hobby. Yeah, exactly. Right? Art. Like, mm-hmm. I, like to play, I like to play golf, but I'm not good enough to encourage anyone to pay me money to watch me play golf. Right. 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 And those are two very different things. It's like my brother. My brother's a little bit older. And he, his love is music. Right. And... He doesn't understand why he can't, he shouldn't be able to play music for a living. So mm. we have this we have this conversation. Well, if you're good enough to convince people to pay you money to listen to you play music, then you're lucky enough to be able to make money doing what is usually a hobby. Aren't those are those separate? There's very separate skill sets. Like you could have great music and not make any money. You could have really poor music and make a lot of money. I feel right. Yes. Like, I don't feel like people like, you know, excuse me. I might, I don't Maybe I might have her on my podcast eventually, but actually I don't even want to mention it, but <laughs> a few people that don't have great voices, but they're really famous. Um, and, uh, <clears throat> like they're extremely famous and they, they've commercialized their not so great music. Yeah. Uh, 
you know, and they don't have a great voice. Well, maybe they made it sound good. I don't know, but yeah. Yeah. And, and that's the nature of commercialization and it's the nature of the creative arts is that it's subjective, right? So some people are going to think that she does have a good voice or she does have a good style or all of the other elements of her um, combine into something that is commercially marketable. Maybe she's attractive or maybe she was, she did a video that was like semi-pornographic and that got her enough fame to, <laughs> to cause enough people to watch her stupid reality show. Or, you yeah. know, that, that, that is the nature of, you know, the world in which we live. So, th so my point of bringing up my mom is that she had to have a certain uh, practic practical nature um, in, in that if she wanted to do this for a living, she needed to paint things that people were willing to buy. Do you feel and like that's like a, a product of the time they lived in? It was very difficult. And because of that, like she had to make money. And so she kind of, that kind of uh, nurtured her skill. I think that the, I don't know if it was necessarily the time in which they live. I think it had more to do with just the financial realities of the family. I think that there was a great deal of value in her bringing in additional money, especially when, um, and, and by the way, maybe this is what you mean by the time, uh, just the time in the family's, you know, evolution. Um, when there was a great deal of value in her bringing in additional money because my brother and I were young, my dad was starting his business. Mm. And in that, in that regard, sure. It, I think it, it was a natural byproduct of that part of the evolution of our family. I think it also, and, and maybe more so has to do with just the practical nature of my mom. And she, she is a very practical person as much as she is creative. She also has a great deal of practicality. And I don't think that she could justify spending so much time doing something that she loved, which was painting, unless she was generating some sort of economic benefit that also was, was beneficial to the family. Mm -hmm. So all of that just kind of boils, that's all very lofty language, but it boils down to things like, um, you know, if she, she needed to attract patrons, you know, and, um, and, and very similar to in the Renaissance era when the Medici's, you know, were, were paying artists to paint things, that's very much the way it works in sort of the, the world of fine art as well. And, and so she was able to meet some, some uh, wealthy people in Dallas, which is where I was born, and they commissioned her to paint certain things. Now, they told her what they wanted her to paint. So a lot of artists are like, well, I should be able to flex my creative muscles and do whatever I want. Okay, well, you can do that if you want it to be a hobby, or if you're the 0.01% who just happens to be able to mesh uh, exactly what you want to do creatively with exactly what people are willing to pay a lot of money for. But that's rare, right? Otherwise, you need to produce things that buyers actually want. Um, the same thing goes for hairdressers. You know, you've got clients, you need to make them happy, you can be creative. Uh, and flex your creative muscles to a certain extent. You yeah. have to make sure that the customer is willing to pay for it. So back to back to my experience growing up with these two people. These were my experiences, and 
they absolutely 100% formed my perspective on what it was to make a living. And I, uh, I went to Pepperdine. That was, that was my university. Um, Great school. Yeah. Uh, I played baseball there. I got recruited to play baseball there. Nice. Um, and I got very nervous. I, I remember uh, I'm going back and I haven't talked about this in a little bit, but I had an ocean view my all four years of going to Pepperdine. I was lucky freshman year because I got a dorm that had an ocean view. And then I got lucky <laughs> sophomore, junior and senior year because a friend of mine had a trust fund with a bunch of money in it. And he, he was able to, to get a place on the beach and he gave me, you know, uh, the, the other bedroom in that apartment. So I had this, this amazing, luxurious kind of experience in, in college. Um, and I was very, very nervous that when college finished, that I was going to be virtually homeless from a relative standpoint. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I started working pretty hard around junior year to find a way to get something going from an entrepreneurial standpoint right after school. Did you always know you wanted to be an entrepreneur? You, like it was a hundred percent like, yeah, you, you, that, okay. So that's, yeah. um, it was almost, almost to the exclusion of any other option. And, wow. and it was like, and I say that because somebody knowing all the options and then deciding that they want to be an entrepreneur is one thing, but I really wasn't even familiar with options other than being an entrepreneur. Yeah. <laughs> you know, those are, so it's almost an extreme, you know, case of this. So, and, and maybe because of that halfway through college, I'm like, Oh, sh oh can I cuss? Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. So I'm like, Oh shit, what am I going to do? Um, you know, because I graduate in, in a couple of years and I've, I've got to have something lined up, not a job, but I'm I have to have a way think that way, by the way. <laughs> What's most, that? Most college students don't think that that way. By the most way, most they, they, they think past like a week usually. Totally, yeah. and of course, I I had fun and all that kind of stuff. But I definitely recognize that my perspective was very much different than everybody else's um, around midway through college because a lot of my friends were, you know, pissing away their time, and I had this great deal of anxiety about what was going to happen you know, when I graduated. Now to, to add some context to the whole thing, I went to school from 1994 to 1998. So if the listeners remember all the way back then, in 1998, that was when the fire was pretty much lit underneath the internet economy, the dot-com boom, uh, you know, investment banks were firing on all cylinders. There were, there were people who were starting ridiculous companies like Global Crossing and other things where, uh, you know, internet incubators, remember internet, I, you're maybe a little bit younger than I am, but um, internet incubators where people would go find $300 million, they would rent the most expensive offices hmm. in a huge city like San Francisco or, or um, yeah. Los Angeles. And they would buy the most expensive furniture. They would load the office with ping pong tables and uh, bean bags and then hire who they thought were the smartest people and say, okay, 
think of a business. <laughs> you remember that? Oh my gosh. I don't remember that. No, maybe I'm 32. So yo, you're too young. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I'm that, 44. That's, that sounds ridiculous. <laughs> that sounds absolutely <laughs> ridiculous. Right. That, and, that happened? And, oh yeah. And that's why I bring it up because this was very much a sign of the times, the frothiness of, of that bubble. Of course, nobody thought it was, nobody thinks it's a bubble when it's a bubble until it pops. Right. But in 19 bubble right now, I don't, but okay. that's, I, uh, that's a different conversation. Do you, you want me to digress? Do you want me to finish? No, no, no. no. C- continue there. Yeah. Continue. This okay. Yeah. So, so 98, um, I, when I was a senior, I had friends that had graduated. They were going to work for investment banks making, you know, $120,000 a year. And this is 20 years ago, right? So $100,000, $120,000 a year coming out of school now is a lot of money. Imagine what it was back then. But that wasn't seen as a lot of money. That was like normal because the stock market had gone from, you know, one to five and uh, you know, whatever scale you want to think about. And this was just kind of normal. I remember that kind of a little anecdotal story here. My mom had an investment account at like an IRA or something with a hundred thousand dollars in it. No, no, no. I'm sorry. She had a little investment account with like $4,000 in it. And she gave it to me around 1996. And I was trading stocks kind of on my own. And within a year and a half, I took that $4,000 to $100,000. Wow. I bought a couple, you know, dot-com bullshit companies, <laughs> and they just flew through the roof. <laughs> and what was so funny is that, you know, as a 20-year-old idiot, I had no idea that that was completely ridiculous <laughs> and unrealistic. Yeah. And I just, I just thought, okay, well, it's $100,000. It was... Like last time I blinked, it was 4,000. Now it's 100,000. Of course it is because everything else in the economy is, oh, is going man. haywire. Oh, man. And then it, it was probably a year later that that 100,000 was back down to about 6,000. And, and, then, and, then, and this was after the dot-com boom in the stock market. And then I went to my mom and I'm like, look, I, I made you 50% return. I did great, you know? <laughs> So, oh, man. did you tell her the whole thing, the everything that happened though? Oh yeah. She remembers. Yeah, she okay. remembers. Yeah. Um, so this was the time. And I remember a friend of mine working for an investment bank. He was putting in, you know, 90 plus hours per week. And I remember he had, he was starting to have some health issues. Like he had one eye that was like, he couldn't get it to stop like like uh, uh, spasming and stuff like that. And sometimes it would just close and he wouldn't be able to open it. He went to the doctor and the doctor said, look, you got to start sleeping more because <laughs> if you don't start sleeping more, you're like going to lose sight of your eyes. You're going to lose, you know, the ability of your eyes. Wow. And I remember hearing this thing and Jesus, that that's definitely not the life that I want at all. I'm definitely going to do this entrepreneurial thing, but what to do. So I started looking at unconsolidated businesses um, I thought that the dot-com, the tech thing, uh, the more I looked at it, the more I realized that I couldn't, it was not anything that I had any knowledge about. Um, I didn't feel as if I could jump in as a 20-year-old, 21-year-old idiot not knowing anything. So I started looking in the complete opposite direction. And maybe this is a little bit 
um, more back to what I knew from my dad's, you know, simple and relatively small real estate business and my mom's simple and relatively small art business. Um, go back to kind of what I know, what makes sense, and something that, that a young person could actually get involved with. Mm. For example, I wasn't going to be able to start an airline, right? That's not something you can start out of college. But what is something I can start? So maybe if I look for an industry that has decent size but is unconsolidated, meaning like tons of one-off sort of units or little owners or um, unsophisticated ownership largely, then I can get in and you know, put up a single unit and see if I can make money doing that. So I looked at things like dry cleaners, car washes, hair salons, and, and maybe a couple other things. I don't remember anymore, but those were the things that I remembered. And the industry that I found most interesting was the salon industry. $60 billion a year industry, and the biggest player in the industry had like 2% of the market. Wow. So, wow, this is something that's really amazing, and nobody's gotten any scale, and it seems recession-resistant, recession and it seems something that everybody really needs to do. I mean, everybody's got to get their hair cut, right? Like, <laughs> except you, well, you've got a little on the side, so you at least have to, you know, maintain, but maybe you do that yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll ignore you for now. Yeah. There's no art working what I'm doing here. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be out of business if we had a whole bunch of you. <laughs> All right. So it seemed like a business that uh, kind of checked off all the boxes. Right. So I, I just started, I graduated. And I moved back to, to, uh, to Dallas. For those of you who don't know, Pepperdine is in Malibu, California. That's why I had an ocean view. Um, but after I graduated, I wasn't going to go get a place in Malibu. So I moved back to Dallas, where my parents still were, and moved into my old room. And I simply endeavored to uh, learn a little bit more about the salon industry specifically and develop uh, what eventually became a business plan. So I would literally drive around to various salons and walk in them and ask to meet the, the owner or the manager. Most of the times the owner's there because, you know, that was uh, part of the salon industry is that most of most salons are owned by a hairdresser who opens up a salon and then takes a, a, some additional hairdressers. So I met with a number of, you know, hairdresser owners, salon owners, and I thought to myself, God, I really think that I could contribute, I could add something to this industry, um, formalize it to a degree, and offer something that maybe is better than what's out there now. Mm -hmm. now. Now, right at that same time, a girl that I was dating in Dallas, her hairdresser moved to a salon called Plaza Salons. And Plaza Salons was five minutes from my parents' house. And it, it was a new model, which I call the studio concept model, where the salon is essentially a bunch of 
individual studios. You might imagine a, a very modern looking office complex. So right. if you walk into an office building and you've, you walk down a corridor and you've got offices left and right, there's very similar um, type of setup for, for the salon. And of, of course, instead of employees and businesses working in these offices, you have hairdressers working in these, in these studios. Right. So I walk into the, she, her hairdresser moves there. She goes and she gets her hair done. She goes home. Uh, this was still in the, in the time of landlines. You're too young to remember maybe, but so. I remember so landlines. I'm not you, sure. you do? Yeah, yeah. Okay. okay. So she goes back to her parents' house where she was living because she had just graduated from college. And she picks up the landline and calls me and she said, hey, you got to check this out. Because, of course, she knew that I was looking at, at the salon industry. Right. So I drive down the, down the street, and I walk into the salon. And from the second that I stepped foot in the salon, it made sense. It made sense to me. Because of my experience with my mom's art and because of my experience with my dad's real estate. I love it. One thing, one thing that I, I failed to mention was that my dad involved my brother and I very deeply in his business when we were younger, growing up. Right. You know, slave labor was, <laughs> is, is an accurate term. You know, he, he, he never had any employees, um, didn't really have the personality to, to have employees and, and to, to, you know, scale it all and, and never really had the ambition to do so. And, and so that simply meant that my brother and I were the ones that would sweep out the warehouses. We would, um, uh, we would hang the for lease signs. We would do the evictions, you know, along with my dad. And so we did all that stuff yeah. with him. So, you know, it, so I understood the nuts and bolts, the fundamental nature of the, um, uh, of the real estate business. So back to when I walked in the salon, it made sense immediately to me because of these reasons. And I was very fortunate that the creator of this concept walks up to me immediately. His name is Keith Clark and Keith's about 85 years old now, still lives in Dallas. And he and I talked for about two hours. Wow. And we got along tremendously. I initially in the conversation, I told him, uh, I acted like I was a client getting my haircut, looking for somebody to get my haircut. But after about an hour, I said, look, I'm actually recently graduated. From, <laughs> yeah, I'm recently graduated from college and I don't have anything to do. My time is cheap. And do you need anybody? And, and I think this concept is amazing. Do you need anyone, you know, to to hang around and maybe help out? And so I worked for him for free for about a year. Whoa. For a year. For a year. So, wow. So a lot of people, they may disagree. I, so it's funny because I did a post on LinkedIn talking about how, you know, people have approached me to work for me. And uh, sometimes I say, I, I, I even offer to pay half of what I normally pay to see like how it goes. And I got so much hate on that post. Like it was like a million views and like 70% of the comments were negative. <laughs> so, wow. And so the fact that you worked for a year yeah. and I, all I did was offer half of what I normally would pay, which is $20 an hour. Yeah. Uh, and I got like demolished online. Um, and you're saying you worked for free for a year, by the way, yeah. I did, I did that too. 
and I feel like that's a common theme amongst the uh, uh, successful I, people. So. Well, of course, the zeitgeist of our culture right now is, um, you know, minimum wage increasing very quickly in, in, in the uh, liberal states like New York and California, et cetera, where I am. But I think the reality, and, and, and I didn't grow into this, this perspective. It was always my perspective. The reality is oftentimes what an employee or an intern is offering a business is simply not worth $15 an hour. Right. Like, you know, if, if, um, if I was required, if Keith was required to pay me back then by the state laws of Texas, then um, he would have said no. Because is that how it is right now, too, in Texas? Like, can you have uh, interns that work that long without pay? I don't know the answer. I don't oh. know the answer. We, we, have one, uh, we have two locations in Texas. We, we don't have our, you know, home office or infrastructure in Texas, so I don't know. To tell you the truth, I'm not even sure how internships work in California, but but I know, of course, um, the political climate, et cetera, good. probably yeah. precludes a lot of that, unfortunately, yeah. because I think it's extremely important to understand that some jobs simply aren't worth minimum wage, and and I don't, and because of that, I don't believe that all jobs. Are, are justified to provide a living wage. Right. Okay. So, you know, I think back to when I was 16 years old, I, I did a certain job and that job is not worth $15. Like at the time, minimum wage was $4.25. It was worth $4.25, but it's not worth 15 or 20. So, however... You know, a business may may need that job to be done, and a high school kid may really benefit from doing that job part time. What about and, people? Yeah, so let me just uh, give you the other side of the argument. What about people that that's all they do, and they just haven't? Maybe they're not capable. Do you feel that like everybody's capable of advancing, or do you feel like there's some people that just aren't capable of advancing? I think there's probably some people who aren't capable of advancing, but does that mean that the business should be required to pay significantly more than the job is actually worth? Yeah. And, and you don't even need to answer that question because the businesses answer that for you. What, right. what, what happens is that that person simply isn't hired anymore. Right. And, and yeah. so you, you get an expansion of the scope of another role in the business. So right. in, in, instead of somebody, I don't know, in the, in the case of like a restaurant, instead of somebody, you know, manning the grill full time, they now man the grill and they sweep the floor mm. because, because it may not be worth it to the business to hire somebody at 15, $20 an hour to just sweep the floor. Right. Makes sense. Okay. Imperfect example, but hopefully it, it made sense. No, it does, it does make sense. Yeah. No, I agree. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. Th I think there's a lot of debate about it. Um, and uh, you're right. I mean, it does, you want, you want jobs open. There, there, there is more of an opportunity for advancement if, if, uh, if the, we keep the minimum wage the way it is, because then there's more job opportunities. And then, um, you know, the more job opportunities there are, the more chances there are to, to advance. So. 
I think so. I, I think you get a more fluid labor market, right? right. I mean, if, when you think of things from a market basis, you've got 16-year-old kids who want jobs. They want to be able to make money. They don't have to make a living wage. These are right. 16 years old, right? Yeah. They, it, it's beneficial for them to have a job, start learning things like responsibility and showing up to a job on time and learning processes, procedures, what it is to work on a team, et cetera. Right. Um, and in doing a job like folding shirts at the Gap, right, which was a very popular thing to do. Um, and I'm sure they're still folding shirts. It's probably not much at the Gap anymore, but hmm. um, you know, the, the, there, are, there are positions like this that, that, are, there, that people want, and, but business owners, have a really hard time justifying filling those positions um, for, for the, for the least skilled because they've simply been priced out. Um, but I don't want to get in a really political conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so back to what I was talking about, what I was doing was not worth, I mean, you know, it probably wasn't worth $3 an hour, you know? So, so I, I did it for free. And um, over time, I, of course, developed skills, and then I became more productive and valuable for Keith. But I still did it for free because I was very honest with him. I said, look, I, I want to move back to California, and I'd like to open a similar type of business because I think what you've done here is great. He said, fine. I learned during that time that uh, I love the industry. I love the business. I love the people in the business. I learned how to take care of hairdressers. I learned what they like. I, I learned what makes them happy. And I learned that, that my skill set is particularly attuned to doing those things. So fast, fast forwarding, um, I spend about a year there. And then- Can I stop you, know, you for a moment? Can I stop sure. you for a moment? If you, at that point, when you started having your eyes set on entrepreneurial endeavors, if you, at that point, you know, saw that you weren't all that great in commercializing your art, would you have adjusted and changed, um, changed your focus? Yeah, I think so. I, I, I would have expected there to be a sense of friction right. in some regard if either I wasn't, if I wasn't good at it in some way right. and maybe my personality wasn't attuned to it or, um, I didn't like it or if the concept didn't seem to work so well, let's say the hairstylist didn't like working in that type of environment, right. etc. You know, a whole host of things that could have gone wrong that and I think any number of them would have created a certain uh, sense of friction, and I think I would have sensed that, mm. but but I I didn't. And looking back now, I have the clarity that gives that that is is a much different perspective than I had back then. Back then, I thought to myself, well, of course I like it, and yeah, sure, of course they like the environment, and. Of, of course, I was I was able to communicate with this hair, hairdresser in such a way that I helped resolve a situation in the salon. Of course, but thinking back now, 
I'm like, wow, this is pretty serendipitous. All of these things coming together that right. I was dating a girl whose hairdresser moved to a salon. I happened to be looking at the salon business. I happened to have one parent who imbued a sense of uh, respect for you know, uh, artistic creatives and another parent who helped imbue a, um, a uh, um, work ethic. <laughs> a, work, a work ethic in a more financial way right. um, with real estate. Right. Um, pretty darn serendipitous. Mm -hmm. uh, but at the time, it seemed just to flow, you know, obviously, right? It happened quickly. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I moved to California. And this obvious business that, you know, I was seeing at the time, seemed like the obvious thing I was going to do. And I get a little shitty apartment in LA and I go mm -hmm. out to ra raise money. I go to all of my uh, rich friends, parents and <laughs> say, Hey, this is, this is this amazing, obvious business and I'm obviously good at it. So you should obviously give me money. And enough of them said, yeah, I'll give you money. Uh, for me to get excited and, and kind of proceed down the road. Now, at the time, even though I was a finance major and all that kind of stuff, I didn't really know which goes first, the, court, the, the horse, the cart, <laughs> the, the egg, the chicken. You know, do you raise money first? Do you develop a business plan first? Do you, do you put up a location first and then raise? Like, what, what do you do, right? And, and so the, these people committed to me verbally to give me money. And then I found a couple locations and kind of, kind of coalesced my business plan into, into something more concrete. And then I went to them and said, Hey, okay, I found this location. It's going to be great. These are the terms. Uh, this is how much money I need and let's go ready for the money. Right? Like, uh, like show me the money. Like where's the check, right? Every single one of those people who gave me a verbal uh, yes, all of a sudden we're like, yeah, you know what? Not so much the right time right now. I, you know, I can't really, if you come to me in a year, maybe I can do it. So every single one of them said no. Wow. When, when, when push came to shove, you know, when the rubber met the road. And, but I had put so much effort into it. And of course I was keeping my parents surprised the whole way that they're like, you know what? Uh, we'll give you the, the money. I think it was at the time as maybe 200 grand. And they were like, we'll, we'll give you the money. And so uh, they invested the money. They, they didn't give it to me. They invested it with me. So they got 50% nice. of, of my first location. And so I opened that location. Uh, I was taking a salary. I owned 50% of the location. They owned 50% of the location. And then started the, just the disaster of mistakes. <laughs> How old were you at this point? I opened that location 20 years ago. So I was 24 by the time I opened the location. It took me about a year and a half to uh, actually get the location open from the time that I had the money to open the location. Got it. Okay. So, Okay. So, you know, little anecdotes like I, th there was, there was, there's something I often tell, there's a story I often tell where 
Um, I, I was building the, the salon. I had a contractor who was the wrong contractor who was taking way too long, was charging too much money, was making mistakes. I'd never built anything before, so I didn't even know they were making mistakes. Um, I had to order furniture and equipment for the salon. I ordered 40 salon styling chairs and 40 shampoo units, and they were going to be delivered on a particular day. I was ready. I was on site, prepared for the delivery of these things. I was going to tell the delivery company where to put all the chairs and the shampoo units. And I, I got a call and the, and the driver says, okay, I'm here. And I'm like, yeah, me too. I'm here. Uh, I don't see you. Well, I'm out on the street. I'm unloading the boxes. Now, my first location is on Ventura Boulevard in Studio City, which is a suburb of Los Angeles. Very busy, very densely packed. And I am on the second level. Okay, I took relatively inexpensive space on the second level of a shopping center. Mm -hmm. The delivery guy's like, well, I'm just lining up. I'm just taking these boxes off the truck and then I'm out of here. And so I look, I look outside of the salon onto the street and he's, he's lining up these boxes. There was, there was a wall of boxes. Each, each box was about 80 pounds and there was a wall of boxes, maybe a hundred, 120 feet lined up on the sidewalk down Ventura Boulevard. Oh man. And, and I go down there, I'm like, dude, like you're going to bring these up, right? And he's like, no, this is, or I don't know, whatever it's called, drop ship or whatever. You know, in, in order to bring it up, you need like another crew, you know? So I brought up all those boxes and to this day, my back has never been the same. Really? So, yeah. Wow. So it took me about five hours and- um, one experience. From the, yeah, that's, that's one of a hundred. One of a hundred experience. So, you know, my mentor, the guy who developed this concept originally, loved to talk about Schultz's law. You know what Schultz's law is? Schultz's law. Is it Howard Schultz? No. Schultz's law, Schultz's law is that Murphy was an optimist. Oh, okay. So everything's going to go wrong. <laughs> yes. If it, can't, if it can go yeah. wrong, it <laughs> will go wrong, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And our job as entrepreneurs is to do what we can within reason to ensure that things go right, right? right. And then even after you do that, prepare yourself for when they go wrong because right. they will go wrong. And sure. I'm not sure if much has changed in 20 years. I mean, things still go wrong. I've gotten better at, you know, preparing things uh, to lessen the probability of them going wrong. And I've done better at preparing myself for when things go wrong, but things just almost to a comical degree (laughs) go wrong. Yeah, it's true. It's like, like in this is how it is in business, I guess. It's just like, Things will always go wrong. It's just part of the job. I, like I, yeah. uh, I had the the um, CEO of World Poker Tour. That's what he said. He's like, it's just part of the job. Things are just gonna go wrong. <laughs> so, That's right. Yeah. That's right. So then um, I opened that location, in and I worked there every day. Um, 
I, I'm not going to tell that many more anecdotes because maybe you want to get into th- like lessons with scaling because I, I read the description of your podcast, but have you listened to my podcast? Um, I haven't listened to the podcast. Okay. Um, yeah, but, but I'm definitely going to after this. <laughs> okay. Uh, sure. I am a podcast junkie. However, for the last probably six months, I've been more into uh, audiobooks. Okay. But, yeah. But I will listen to your podcast. You have a podcast too, right? I do. Yeah. What, yeah. what got you into, by the way, smart, smart idea, but what, what got Thank you into that? So uh, fast forwarding, uh, from one location to, uh, let's see, two and a half years ago when I started my podcast, probably had 12 locations. Now I have 21 and about 12 locations. When I started the podcast, uh, we were at a very interesting point in our evolution, uh, especially as it pertains to the industry as a whole. Mm-hmm. I was anathema to the industry, and, and some people will still tell you that I am anathema to the industry, and more specifically, um, my, this concept that you know, we're, we're growing is anathema to the industry. We, we were kind of like dropping a big boulder into a stagnant pond. So the, so the traditional salon owners were very upset that we were giving additional opportunities to the most successful hairdressers. And this was harming their business. Okay. Um, So consequently for the say first many years of, of me um, getting into the business and kind of growing um, the incumbent media of the industry did not cover me. Okay. And, and other, and, and I say, because me, of the other it, salons. yeah, because they traditionally have been supported by um, the traditional interest within the salon industry. Okay. So it was so, like, it was like the, the taxi drivers hating on Uber. Yeah. hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah. So for, so for example, you know, companies like Aveda, okay. Aveda's model was, to, and maybe still is to a degree, they're kind of a holdout, to control the, uh, c- control vertically, you know, their business. So they wanted, of course, they produce a product uh, that is very high quality, et cetera, but they also want to control the salon. Mm-hmm. They want to control the service providers, the hairstylists. Right. And they want to make sure that clients are buying their product from salons that they control. Okay. And, and, and I understand the argument. I'm not saying it's a bad argument. Well, that never lasts. That never lasts long. Like when right. people try to control the market, because eventually the market catches up and you can't, you can't, it's like, it's like trying to control a wild horse. It's not going to happen. You know, totally. Because again, we are dealing with creative artistic people and, and they don't want to be controlled. Okay. You know, one of our philosophies at Salon Republic is, we believe that hairstylists are happy, happiest and most successful when they're able to choose how they work. Just the same way that my mom was never told how to paint, what to paint, where to paint, when to paint, what to wear when she's painting, what type of paint to use, et cetera, et cetera. Hairstylists, I think, are very much the same way. So the incumbent interests like Aveda and a lot of the traditional salons um, are, were the traditional supporters of the uh, incumbent media. 
Right. Okay. So there was a lot of pressure on the incumbent media to ignore kind of this trend towards independence for the hairdressers, which, which I was, you know, one of the first like ones. Against the, the, the people's will pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. And, and all of it of course is, is because they just want to make more money. Right now, now the, some of the people, if anybody listening knows anything about the salon industry or is involved in the salon industry, some may scoff and say, no, those people want to control the quality, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah. let, let, let's be reasonable. Yeah. It, it primarily has to do with the fact that I was disrupting their uh, golden goose. Okay. Mm. Um, so, so given this, given this landscape, of how the incumbent media was not really covering us. Um, I, I, there, I was very interested in, um, in, in, in kind of where we were going as a company and me as the leader of the company, what was going to happen as we were scaling. Uh, about this time, I had committed to scaling, okay? I had gotten married, I had kids, and frankly, I didn't want to be home. I, I, I used to have my office in my house. And all of a sudden, I'm like, geez, like, I feel like I, I just took a huge step uh, personally. The business is going well. I feel like I, I also need to take a big step professionally. The, uh, I feel like I need to, um, the business needs to grow according to how it's being received in the marketplace. Uh, I need to professionalize. So that's when I first took um, outside money. Um, otherwise, I, I'd grown for about 12 years or so organically, saving money, you know, et cetera. Whenever I got enough money, I would put up a new location. Um, and so I committed to, to scaling. And when I did that, I recognized that if I was successful in a number of years, um, it would be impossible to ignore the presence of Salon Republic within the industry. And I was going to be a leader, whether I wanted to or not. Um, that, was a, that was a somewhat uncomfortable proposition for me personally, because I've, I'm not one to toot my own horn. I'm not one to go out and say, look at me, look at me. Um, come follow me. I'm doing great things. That's never been sort of my my MO. My MO has traditionally been, I'm going to perform. And then my performance is going to do the speaking for me. And I think back to my, my athletic, you know, career and I, I played multiple sports and, baseball, and right? I was, when, yeah, well, baseball, baseball is, is the sport that I chose to, you know, continue on with. And I, I, I guess I was most successful in that, you know, I played for a D one team at Pepperdine Pepperdine had, when they recruited me, that they had just won the College World Series, so that things were looking, you know, very positively for me uh, in a baseball perspective. And when you play a sport, um, unless it's a very showy sport, maybe like football, when you like do a celebration dance every time you pass the the touch the the uh, goal line, right? Um, most sports, you you simply perform and you let your performance do the talking for you, right? Right. Right. Um, and so that's kind of how I was with business as well. And I think that I was re recognizing that that was costing me. That, that was not uh, a good mindset to have. The, the, uh, the media companies were not covering me. And I, all, I had to learn how to toot my own horn. Okay. Oh, yeah. So, 
Yeah, I, I see where you're going with this. Yep. Yeah. So I started tr to try to figure out how to toot my own horn. Uh, along the same time, um, I, I was it, it, you know, growing quite a bit. I think at the time, you know, leading into the mid uh, 2000 teens, like, like call it 2015, 2016, I probably had a thousand hairdressers at the time. And I had a lot of really high profile hairstyles moving in. Guy Tang, who's arguably the, the most famous hairstylist in the world, started at my location in um, and, uh, uh, West Hollywood and still works there. So he, I, I watched him do these things and I would have conversations with him and afterwards, I would think to myself, God, like, I just, that was such an amazing conversation. So many of our Salon Republic hairstylists would love to have heard and would benefit from that conversation. How do I scale that? And so these two things kind of combined into, all right, I, I need to toot my own horn, and, but I want to do so in a, in a way that is valuable for our hairstylists so that they learn and what, what, what platform am I going to choose? And the answer to that uh, eventually was, was podcasting. So we started, we dropped the first podcast in 2017. Right. It was a somewhat slow start. Um, we, we dropped an episode and then I think it was three weeks or whatever. And, and I'm like, well, I guess we have to put up another episode, you know? And, and so I didn't, I didn't recognize the, uh, <laughs> the commitment. I didn't recognize the responsibility of it. It's worth, I didn't rec it's worth it. Yeah, worth it. Sure. And, <laughs> and, and so when I did start to recognize those things and, you know, yes, I, I think this is worth it. Let's commit to it. And so for since maybe two years, we've, we haven't missed a week. Uh, we've done 100 and maybe 20 episodes. I might be off by a few, but we're a weekly show now. It's called the hair game podcast. Love it. Uh, we, we try to uh, specifically uh, tailor our content to hairdressers. Smart move. Uh, Very smart move. And, and, and you know, I, I think it, it, adds, it adds to the careers of our listeners. And, and it's just got all sorts of, you know, benefits and, and costs. That's also a great recruitment tool, right? Like, I think so. I think so. I, it's one of these things where it's like, you know, it's from marketing perspective, right? It's like awareness. Okay. So what do you get from awareness? Um, is it a direct sales tool? Maybe, you know, maybe, I think it is. I think it is. maybe a little bit. I, there's, it, it certainly does not justify the cost uh, from a time and financial standpoint. However, um, you hope that that awareness, as we grow in a leadership position in this industry, um, we are defining our own story. We're defining our own voice. We are creating the proper uh, perspective that people have of our brand. Right. And then long term, uh, I think it will, it, it will benefit our, our business in that way. And at the same time, just juicing the business of our listeners on a, on a weekly basis. So it's got all sorts of different elements of um, advantages and benefits, you know, for us. And, and only a few of them I can be very sure of, you know, many of them are somewhat arbitrary. Yeah. 
Um, I, I, I definitely see the value in, uh, in doing podcasts, maybe for my industry, it, it might be different, but, um, uh, do you, are you interviewing mainly, uh, hairstylists? Yes. Um, okay. or, or people who have something, uh, that hairstyles can directly benefit from. For example, we've recently been on a spate of doing episodes related to financial uh, responsibility and personal financial management. So I interviewed a certified financial educator, you know, somebody who could speak to, um, you know, how should hairstylists get better at managing their finances? Got it. Um, well, see, the way I see it is like, I've kind of, in, I've kind of imbued this, this podcasting game into my sales process. So I actually interview people that would be great, like as clients. So on the front end, it, it increases my Rolodex. A lot of them don't become clients, but it, it expands my Rolodex almost. And so, and then on the, on the long term, on the long end, um, it, if I grow an audience, people will come to me. So that's how I see it. Sure. It is a tremendous networking tool. Tremendous yeah. networking tool. I didn't understand that initially. I, I did not understand that either. And, and I'm, I don't, uh, you're, you're speaking of a direct benefit, which makes a ton of sense. Um, from my standpoint, there isn't quite the direct benefit. Um, for example, if I interview a very well-known hairstylist from the UK, this, this hair, hairdresser is not going to come and work at my Salon Republic locations in California. However, this is now somebody that I know, and lo and behold, this dude's become a buddy of mine, right? And all of a sudden, it makes it a lot more fun for me to go to hair shows, you know, because we're hanging out and having a drink and et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, th there's, there's, and that's kind of going back to, I use the word arbitrary, that, that is kind of an arbitrary benefit. And, and maybe long-term there will be some, or, uh, some other sort of benefits to it. Yeah. I've gained clients through just podcasting and just getting, cause most people, but I've, I, I've taken it to like the 10th degree. I've, I'm, I'm a little intense with it. Uh, so I've, I mean, re regarding the, the uh, production value, I, I don't think I'm, I'm high up there. Uh, I think the, the substance is great. I think eventually I'll start improving the production value, but, I, I did like 18 podcasts last week. So, <laughs> wow. It's a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's why my production value, I don't focus too much on the production value, uh, but I, but that's improving. So, um, slowly production. I mean, I, I would say that production value has a small percentage to do with why people are going to listen. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Cause I have like people that are fans and they message me and, and like, like there's people that spend like, like, six months preparing their production value and they don't even post one podcast. Totally. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Yeah. So, so yep. yeah. Anyways, go ahead, uh, continue on with what you were saying. Um, but so, so your podcast, uh, long-term you see this paying off for you. Um, yeah. I mean, I think long-term with all the little ancillary benefits of it, um, I think it's, it's absolutely, you know, I told my wife probably a year ago, I said, you know, the podcast may be one of the smartest things that I've ever done. Absolutely. And, and, and I, I said this with the full recognition that a lot of it is ancillary to what we do, what, what our main business is, but it's something, it, it's one of those rare things that as a business, which sometimes can be considered a commodity, it's something that sets you apart, Absolutely. right? 
yeah. it gives gives you a voice, gives a personality to a brand, and and can uh, can provide and build goodwill. Very valuable, um, hard to find goodwill over the long term with an industry. Absolutely, and and the way the way I see this, I, I tell people this all the time. One year of great branding beats ten years of sales. Sure. Yeah. No doubt about it. Some, now, a lot of people it, listening, that's not going to hit them. Yeah. But when they actually start doing branding, you know, it, it definitely is effective. No doubt. No doubt. Absolutely. Okay. So, wh- when did you get? Let's go back to when you got your second salon because you yeah. got you started seeing some success with your first salon. I we didn't even get to that part. I don't even think. Uh, yeah. Right. And, and, and I think this goes to, you know, your podcast being about scaling and, and helping your listeners kind of learn and understand what it, what it means to scale. I think that over the 20 years, I've really developed a decent understanding of, of what that actually means. I, I had zero understanding for the first, I mean, I would call it 15 years and I've, I've really, I, my thoughts have coalesced in the last five years into something that I think makes a lot of sense when, when I'm introspective about what's happened. You know, j- just with that first location, I ran it for three years. It was an 80-hour 80 80 hour a week sort of a situation. Um, it was an all-in, this cannot fail kind of an effort on, on my part. I was the only employee um, it was a tremendous learning lesson. I was operating the business essentially out of my checking account. And by that, I don't mean in a mechanical, logistical way. I mean, really, the biz- if the business did well, then I had money to afford food and rent. If the business did not do well, then I didn't, right? And I would have had to yeah. figure something else out. So there, it was really a no loot. Well, how do I want to say this? You know, this cannot fail situation, right? That it was my only option. Right. So, and I think that is what guided a lot of my early decisions that caused it to be or resulted in it being a success. And there's one anecdote I like to talk about where there was this one girl. Okay, let's be honest. I was a single guy in my early 20s. I'm, I'm sitting at the front of a hair salon. I've got 40 hairdressers in there, many of them. Are, are ladies and they have a lot of clients who are ladies. And so, you know, for me, it was really cool to have so many ladies walking in and out and I would get to know them and, and all that. And there was one in particular, a client that I liked tremendously. I don't remember her name. We're going back really far, but I finally got a date with this, with this girl. And I took her out to sushi. I like saved money and I was going to take her out to sushi. I was going to splash out. And, and I took her, I picked her up the whole nine yards and took her to sushi. We're in the middle of dinner and I get a phone call and it was one of my hairstylists who was having um, trouble with her electrical socket, her electrical service there in her studio kept popping it kept um you know uh going off right like her blow dryer she would do her blow dryer trying to finish a client and then the electric would go off 
obviously highly frustrating. You know, I prided myself in running an operation where our hairdressers were going to be happy and successful. How could that happen if the electrical is going down? Um, and, and this was that we could, I couldn't have this. Um, right. it, and so I looked at this beautiful girl that I had been working hard to get to go out with me for a long period of time. And I said, this is happening and I've got to go. You can, you can come with me if you, I'm going to pay. I'll leave money. You can come with me if you want. And or I'm talking to you for, for life. Or you can just hang yeah. out, finish the food. And like, I'll put extra money if you want to order more food or whatever. But oh. I, I got to go take care of this. I can see where this and, is going. <laughs> yeah. So, so she stayed. I dropped money on there to, to pay for the dinner. And, and I left to go take care of my shit. Yeah, because I've always had a notion that I'm I'm dutiful to my business. I'm dutiful to my commitments. You know, which was this business at the time, um, much more so than than a girl I didn't know. Regardless of the fact that she was pretty, and I worked hard to get to get. And of course, I never talked to her again. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> but having a sense of duty and responsibility to your business, you know, to the things that you commit to, whether it's your business as an entrepreneur or your family as a family person is, is one of the most important things in life. And, you know, I probably got this from my parents as well, who were still together after like 50 trillion years, even mm. though they, they had ups and downs. Um, th this has always been critical uh, to, to w w what, what has happened in, in my career. And, and something as I've gotten older, it's become more clear to me that, that, um, is, is rare, um, in other people. So, uh, so that, that's, that, that's an example of like the, the degree to which, you know, that, that was, um, so I, I ran that salon for three years and then I had, um, saved enough money to build another salon and I hired somebody. I hired a series of people, all of whom were horrible. Um, I want to say I, my first girlfriend, or not, not my first girlfriend. My first employee was a girl I was dating, which is stupidest thing I could have done, and 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 that was a miserable failure uh, from an you know an employee standpoint. And so I had to get rid of her. And and then we I hired a series of other people, m most of whom I had to fire. And and, and so you know, long story short, your biggest mistakes regarding hiring employees. What did you learn from that? Well, when it hiring somebody is a skill, it's a skill that is not taught in school. It's a skill that I don't know might be taught in a in an MBA class. I don't know, but you know, it's one of those critical things that I mean. Even if you're not an entrepreneur, if you're growing within a business, you eventually end up um, interviewing people. It's a skill that I think a vast majority of business people just never even learn. Um, that. And I boil it down to what are the priorities? You know, what are, what are the priorities that uh, that you need to place on this new human who is going to be part of your living organism that is your company? Right. Most people um, misplace the priorities, or they don't even think about it from a priority standpoint. Um, but but what are the most important things about this human? And and, and most of the uh, cases that I've had direct experience with at Salon Republic, 
it's things like um, attitude and aptitude. And, you know, those are, those are the two primary things that we look for. Um, I don't look as much for things like, um, you know, direct experience doing a particular thing. Mm. Um, I, I look for, for attitude number one, and I look for aptitude number two. Attitude boils down to, do they give a shit? Could, could attitude lead to aptitude? In your opinion? Not in the way that I'm defining it. Got it. I'm, de- I'm defining it um, very separately. Attitude very much is the nature of the person. Do, do they give a shit about their job? Do they give a shit about doing a good job while they're working for you? Right. There is a remarkable percentage of people who just don't give a shit. <laughs> okay? It's highly frustrating. Right. Um, but this is the reality they, they don't care about you. Um, they care only about getting the maximum amount of money while delivering the least amount of effort. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And you want to avoid those people. I call those people landmines. Okay. So you want to avoid the landmines and you want to look for the people who have some of what I mentioned before, which is a sense of duty and responsibility to their commitments. So you want the people who, um, if they choose to work for you, Mm -hmm. then they're committing to their role in your organization. And because of their commitment, they have a sense of duty and they have a a sense of responsibility to to doing a good job. Okay. Is is there something to be said about the fact that, you know, in, in someone's character, they could stay with you if everything went to, to crap, everything went to shit, they would stay with you regardless. Is there something to be said about somebody that has that, that character trait within them? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that that is, that is a sense of duty and responsibility. I would argue that I have never believed as an employer, um, and I've never expected as an employer that somebody should... Um, uh, that somebody should place the, uh, the importance of the organization above their own. Right. So if, if things are going to shit, I would not expect an employee to say, I'm going to hang in with you, even though my life is going to go to shit because okay. this organization is going to shit. I would never expect that from it, anyone. It's a special type of human. To, yeah. To well, I, I would call that person... Um, Oil. <laughs> yeah, lo- loyal to to their expense, you know, and and I, I don't I don't think that that's necessarily good. Um, and, and like I said, I would never really expect that. I, I think that I I would want someone to recognize that their sense of duty and responsibility to doing a good job, contributing to the company in the best way possible, as they're employed with that company is going to have, you know, it is selfish for them to do that. It is going to render the best results for them personally, if they do that. Um, and, and, And of course, if you look at most organizations that have survived and done well and existed, you know, in a healthy way, you look at the participants in that organization and that, that has been, uh, that has been the result of that sort of an attitude. That's, those are the types of people that I'm looking for when I'm interviewing. 
Um, now, you know, each position, of course, requires a little bit of a different thing. If, if I'm hiring an accountant, and thank goodness I don't have to hire accountants anymore because I'm a very experienced, a sophisticated CFO, but when I was hiring accountants, of course, I wasn't going to hire an accountant who had never done accounting before. Okay, so this is an exception to kind of the initial rule that I laid out before. They do need to have a great deal of experience, you know, in accounting, in addition to, you know, a good attitude and, and a, a high aptitude for that particular technical skill. Right. But in general, attitude and, and aptitude. So we talked about attitude. Aptitude is simply, are they capable of... Uh, doing the task are they capable of learning are they capable of taking their taking their learnings and developing it into you know knowledge and wisdom that results in this growing experience over time that means that they're they're uh, able to contribute more and more you know that's how i define aptitude so it's a it's a skill to learn how to decipher whether the human in front of you has these skills and you're going to spend, you know, whatever, an hour with this person in front of you. They're trying to fool you into thinking that they can do anything and they're worth, you know, 10 times um, what their contribution is going to be. And, and it's your job to, to figure out, is this the right person for, for this role? Do you believe in hiring fast and firing fast or do you believe in hiring slow and firing fast? It's a great question. And I think my answer has evolved a little bit. And I, I think it, it also has a lot to do with the boss. Uh, and let, let's, let's say the listeners are, are going to be the boss in this scenario. Um, what, what kind of a leader are you? Are, are you somebody who has trouble letting go of people? Are you, are you some, or are you somebody who, doesn't mind that because it's, there's a lot of people who there's a lot of friction when it comes to then letting somebody go, like they'll keep somebody on for two years, even though it's the wrong person. Yeah. Um, I don't think so. So, so when, if somebody is like that, um, I, I would, I would recommend that they hire slowly and, and then they try to get better at firing quickly um, somebody who's really good at firing fast, I would say, yeah, maybe, maybe you are the kind of leader who can hire fast uh, because you can also fire fast. Um, one thing that in my organization, we, I, I never, with very few exceptions, I, I rarely had a hard time firing fast because um, despite the discomfort personally, of course, it's, one of the least fun things that any boss has to do, of course, um, because I'm human, just like everybody. I have emotions and, and I'm empathetic to the person sitting across from me. Um, I, I prioritize the organization and I prioritize, mo- most importantly, the customer. So if I have somebody sitting in front of me who is letting down the organization and more specifically the customer because they're just not doing a good enough job, whether they're trying to or not, it's irrelevant. If they're, if they're, if they're not performing, then I need to uh, get them out and get somebody who is performing in. And, and I believe that is a, an empathetic thing to do 
because that person, if they're not performing, they're, they're going to have a slower yeah. road to success or a, zero, a dead end road towards success in yeah. my company. So let's get them out so they can find something you know, that, where they're going to be more successful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see it that way. And actually, um, Jeff Wiener of uh, LinkedIn thinks, thinks that way as well. Um, it's more empathetic to give them an opportunity somewhere, uh, somewhere else where they can flourish. Because if yeah. they're not flourishing in your organization, then, then you're not doing them a service. Totally. And, and people sense it. People sense it. They, they know that they're they're not contributing and the like other they would like to about them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, these are humans. They, they sense it. The other humans, you know, <laughs> behave in certain ways. And, and so that, that person, you know, senses a certain friction in the organization on a daily basis and whether they know it or not, it, it's not the healthiest situation. So let's make a decision. Let's make the right decision um, even though in the short term, it's going to be painful because all of a sudden there's nobody in that role and, oh my God, what am I going to do? And then the entrepreneur who's, you know, trying to grow in a leadership position, all, all of a sudden has to take tasks that are um, not really in their, um, their timeline on a daily basis. And, but you have to bite the bullet on these things. You have to rip off the Band-Aid in order to grow. You have to. Um. And okay, so let's go to, let's, let's talk about scale. And what, what did you find the most challenging thing about scaling regarding, you know, where did you start first? I boil down, you know, my perspective on scale boils down to three stages. First stage is something that I, I think is going to be most critical for most of the business people that I've spoken to. Um, who, who care to speak to me, you know, as a small business person. Um, and and these, these tend to be people who are thinking about starting a business or they've started a business and, and, you know, they're trying to scale. Make sure your business is worth scaling. And this is such an important thing. And nobody talks about this. Like the number of people that I've spoken to, that I've sat across from, and they're asking me all these sorts of, all this advice. And I, I ask them a bunch of questions, try to learn about them. And they own one location or their business has like, you know, one product. And that location, it, they've been running the location for four months. Okay. They just opened it. Mm. I'm like, oh, okay. So like, how's it going? Like, What's it like? Have you built, uh, how many people have you hired? And like, is it making money? And like, do you have a, a path to profitability that is clear and reasonable, you know, given Schultz's law, right? That a bunch of shit's going to go wrong if it hasn't already, right? And so often, I'm talking to people whose business is losing money, a lot of money. Hey, man, can you hear me? Oh, sorry about that. Hey Ben, sorry. Uh, we're still going on here. <laughs> sorry about that. Uh, sorry, okay. ran, ran into a little bit of uh, our, uh, our, 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 our former podcast, but uh, we got a three way going. Time? <laughs> Hold sorry. on. I'm having a little trouble hearing you. <laughs> hey Ben, can, can we, can we continue in about 20 minutes? Nothing. That's uh, okay. I'm going to, I'm going to text you. <laughs> sorry about that. Sorry about that. No problem. Uh, so we went okay, a little so over. It was more than expected. So, uh, 
I can I can I can wrap up with these three stages of scaling. Okay. Um, how many more minutes? No, no. G give it uh, seven more minutes. Uh, I told him eleven thirty, so uh, I can uh, wrap it up. Yeah, yeah. No worries. No worries. No worries. T take your time. Um, what was the last thing that I was saying before Ben came on? What is it? Um, oh, okay. So um, their business is losing money. Yeah. And they're concerned about their next five locations. And I'm looking at them and I'm like, why are you worried about location even number two? Like, why are you even worried about year number two yeah. with your location number one? Like, you need to get your shit together now here on the micro level. And yeah. so often, and you can, you know, a, a pontificate on why, but so often people, entrepreneurs, get so far ahead of themselves that they, and they don't want to do the micro things. You know, they don't want to leave the date to go take care of the electrical problem at 9.30 at night on a Saturday. But that's the kind of shit you've got to do. And you've got to do it for a long period of time if that's what your business requires, right? So, so often, like, that's, people want all this huge advice and largesse and all these brilliant comments from me. We don't get past that, okay? So that's number one. Make sure your business is worth scaling. Get it, get it to a, a level where on its micro basis, it is doing well. You've developed the core competencies to make your business on a small scale doing well. You're building, you're finding new customers regularly. Uh, let's say it, it's a multi, it's a multi-unit concept, but you've just got a first unit. You, your first unit is doing great. You're, you're building revenue every month. You've, you're developing some processes internally, et cetera. Make sure you get to that level and then start worrying about scaling. Second stage, once you understand how to make the business work well on this micro level, begin to consider the economics on a medium level. Okay, not a big level yet. Let's be reasonable. Businesses take a long time. Think about the economics on a medium level. Oftentimes, there's a very awkward growth stage where you're building the human infrastructure, you're hiring people, and you're developing systems in advance of your company becoming large enough to afford it. Right. Okay, so this is a friction point. There's a lot of friction moving on from stage one to stage two because the entrepreneur goes from having a business, let's say stage one is successful, you've developed um, uh, a one location, it's making money, it's making $125,000 a year. You're like, sweet, I'm making $125,000 a year. However, in order to get to the second stage, you've got to take that 125000 and you've got to only put $48,000 into your bank account and you've got to use the rest of that money to start building a, a foundation for stage two, okay? Mm -hmm. Hiring somebody who can um, fill in some of the weaknesses that you have as a leader, hiring somebody that can help you with the processes and procedures and, and building kind of this, this foundation for growth. Um, and this is where your leadership skills are tested. Are you good enough 
of a leader to find the right people, convince them to work for you, and put them in the right positions? Are you objective enough to take the ego hit that, yeah, I do have weaknesses and I need to patch those weaknesses with people who are stronger? It all comes um, down to being self-aware. So, so much. Yeah. So much. Yeah. Yeah. You're so aware and, uh, and, uh, you you can, you can see where you're lacking and where your strengths are. Right. So many people think that leadership means that when you get your team in a room, that you are the one who everybody knows and recognizes you as the smartest one in the room and you have the loudest voice and you are coming up with all the great ideas. That is not leadership at all. Leadership is finding and convincing the right people to be in the right places in your organization so that eventually, not immediately, but eventually the effectiveness of the team is greater than the effectiveness of each individual. You feel that like, okay, so that there's, there's a difference between, by the way, Ben is very flexible. He's very, uh, very awesome guy. So cool. uh, he's being super flexible. So um, you feel that the first, the a first stage entrepreneur is much different than a second stage executive. Yeah. Yeah. I hear. Yeah. That's, that's what I, I, uh, I, I found is that, yeah, absolutely. It's, much, the, the, different. it's a much different thing. They, they can be it, entrepreneurial in nature, but they're not entrepreneurs and you're not an executive either. So right. the, the, yeah. the, there's an evolution in, in the individual. And, uh, um, and, and this is of course why most businesses stay small businesses. And by the way, um, you know, mo- most entrepreneurs, maybe they don't want to scale. They, they think they have to scale. But like my dad, he never even had one employee. And it was totally cool. He, he yeah. became a, you know, by all intents and purposes, a, a wealthy person. Um, you know, n- not, certainly not going to impress somebody listening to a business podcast, but, <laughs> but a very comfortable life, which provided a great deal of freedom. And, and that's totally cool. And he had certain personal limitations, which which kind of gave him those boundaries. And he recognized those as a self-aware person um, um, and didn't try to get over his skis, which, which that's almost more impressive than somebody who's able to scale a business. But, but the evolution that you're talking about, first stage, second stage, third stage, it requires a tremendous amount of flexibility, self-awareness, yeah. and, and, and really a commitment to learning on the part of the entrepreneur. Yeah, not everybody has to scale either. Yeah. Uh, it's not for everyone. You actually have to enjoy the process. And mm-hmm. by enjoying the process, like, like I haven't reached a level of scale to, at your level. Um, but like what, what I mean by enjoy the process is being dragged through their mud consistently every day for a few years. Yeah. <laughs> and like, yeah. you actually are okay with this. <laughs> like, yeah. Be- because if you're not, it's, uh, it's less likely you're going to stick it out. Right. Yeah. It, it's the whole Schultz's law thing. I mean, it's like, shit's going to keep going wrong. It's, it's just, it just is. So the, the faster you learn to love that process, like you said, um, the more you're, you're going, the more likely that you're going to stay and long enough to learn and make those right decisions that, that allow you to get from stage one to stage two and then stage two to stage three. So, and the way that I see stage three, by the way, is if you've done, stage one and two well, then uh, particularly stage two well, and you've kind of invested in building an infrastructure of 
you know, um, of people who are the right people in the right places, there is very much a natural growth into a stage um, that involves the company to fit the infrastructure. Yeah, absolutely. Okay? And the friction point there is capital, nine times out of 10, unless you've been born with a big trust fund. The, the friction point is, is capital. This is where, okay, I've got three units of this juice store, and, or you've got a tech business that, that is uh, gaining in popularity, and you're building uh, customers exponentially, you know, quarter over quarter, et cetera. Um, you, the, the company wants to do nothing more than to grow. It, it's, just, it's just obvious. And your, your team feels it, you feel it, um, your customers feel it, you sense it from your customers. Um, now you need money because growth requires money. It's, it's a very rare business, if there ever existed one, where you can grow appropriately without having to raise money. So then, as an entrepreneur, you need to grow uh, from first stage to second stage leader to all of a sudden uh, learning about raising capital. There are some companies that have grown in, in a privately without money, an investment in money. Um, but it's really, really rare. Really rare. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I was able to get to, let's see. Um, I was able to get to six before I, I, but, but, you know, highly indebted. Um, and, 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 and and by the way, the hard part of doing that is, is maintaining a lifestyle as if you're making $40,000, even though your, your business might be making $300,000. Right. And $1,000 is not. (laughs) <laughs> right. But, but if you're going to grow organically, you can't live a $300,000 life. If your business is making 300,000, you can't live a $300,000 lifestyle. And so it's very difficult to have a business making $300,000 and to live a 40 or 50 or $80,000 lifestyle. It, it requires a particular human. And, you know, I, I, I did it, but I remember how freaking uncomfortable it was. Yeah. Um, and so, so that was that kind of friction point I mentioned before. The friction point of the third stage is raising capital, appropriate capital, to scale your business in a sophisticated way, right? So you need to develop a capacity to properly capitalize your business. That means learning, that means, you know, learning about investment banks and outside investors and institutional debt and what do commercial banks look, look for and what are the financial strengths of your business and, and, and what are the capital sources most likely to fund you in, in the cheapest possible ways. And that is a whole different skill set. Yeah, I, I, I 100% agree. So I don't, I, 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 dude, honestly, I, this would probably be like a two hour, three hour podcast, but I can't keep then waiting. Um, but uh, so if, if somebody wants to get a hold of you, um, maybe there, there's a, a hairstylist listening to this, how would, they, how would they do that and how would they potentially work with you? 
Well, Instagram is, you know, I probably spend the most time on Instagram. It's my Instagram handle is love Eric Taylor. Eric is with a C love Eric Taylor. My email is right there on the Instagram. So you can go there and hit the, hit the email. Um, but if somebody doesn't have Instagram, my email is Eric, E-R-I-C at salonrepublic.com. My company is salonrepublic.com. Um, the Instagram for Salon Republic is Salon Republic. My podcast is The Hair Game Podcast. You can find it anywhere and everywhere. Uh, the Instagram for The Hair Game Podcast is The Hair Game Podcast. I love it. I love it. Well, we're going to blow up, man, and uh, as a podcast, and I'm happy to ha- have had you on. I really Thank appreciate you. it. It was a great um Great podcast. And uh, again, look forward to doing another one. I appreciate you having me. Absolutely.